the financial dads are not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, tax or other advice in or by virtue of this podcast. Hello, welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. This podcast is for all the moms and dads out there who struggle with life's topics, especially related to family and finances. Now, here's my dad, Paul Fagan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. Today, we welcome John Crane, author and financial advisor with Crane Financial. John is a financial advisor with more than two decades of experience in the financial services industry. He has devoted his career to providing financial guidance to business professionals, corporate executives of small and mid-sized businesses, and medical specialists. John believes cash flow management is the dominant determinant of long-term financial failure or success. All roads lead back to how you manage your cash flow. He is the author of The One Number Budget, Why Traditional Budgets Fail, and What to Do About It. He teaches how to simplify your budget process and how a lifetime perspective can enable uh, you to build a funded retirement. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, John, this is this is great because one of the, one of the asides, um, we've done 140 episodes, and I've wow. I do it by myself now. We've had two previous I have a, two previous partners uh, that worked with me. Jody, my the first podcast partner that I had, very insane. Uh, if that's the right word, he'd say it about budgets. <laughs> Uh, maybe maybe that's not the right word. He he was he was very focused on budgets and and making sure everything was very tightly stitched. And we used to we used to talk about it a bit. I I would budget at the macro level, and he would budget at the micro level. So for me, I I I never really budgeted the day to day, but I did have kind of like a forecast, or I had a, I have a, I still have it. We've talked about it on the show, a spreadsheet that allows me at a very high level to kind of understand my financial roadmap. And I've been using that for years. Um, and so I, I just wanted to really, when I saw this come across in the email that we would have you on the show, I was like, wow, this is going to be great because yeah. we never had someone who I would consider a budget expert coming from the financial industry. I, I don't think financial advisors talk about budgeting enough. I think they talk more about investments. They do. And they don't talk enough about budgets. So it was very pleasant to, 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 you know, to a pleasant surprise to get you on the show. So John, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey. Sure. So I, I grew up just north of New York City in a small town called Armonk, New York, uh, where IBM's corporate headquarters is. Uh, I grew up in an IBM family. And, uh, you know, as I guess a lot of young men, you know, you want to be just like your dad. So uh, after I graduated from college, I went to go work for a large corporation. I went to go work for the Sprint Corporation. And for the first almost 10 years, I just uh, chased promotions and bigger paychecks because I thought that was the key to happiness. <laughs> and then um, I guess about six, seven years into that journey, I realized that being in the corporate America just wasn't really going to work for me. Uh, so I uh, spent about two years while I was still at Sprint researching different careers and financial advisor was the one that really stood out. Uh, a litmus test that I used was every time I had an idea about a, a different career that I could go into, I would ask people close to me. I said, hey, could you could you see me doing this? And when I got to financial advisor, I started hearing um, not only could I see you doing it, but if you choose to take that on as a career, I want to be your client. 
And so when I when I heard that a few times, I said, "Okay, I'm 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 onto something." Uh, and that was uh, 20 years ago. Uh, transitioned from Sprint into being a financial advisor, and I've been here ever since. Oh, that, that's great! It's so funny. Our my my father-in-law worked for IBM for 32 years, um, and so familiar with when IBM had their location in Somers, they had their location yes. in, in Armonk, they had a location in Connecticut. Um, he lo he loved working there, and I think he bled blue. Um, a lot of oh, people yeah. that worked at IBM for you know thirty two years or more, or or you know twenty five years or more, they 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 were especially back then. I don't know yeah, about eighties and nineties. Back 90s, then, that was, that was the company. Place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's so funny. Like I maybe that's why I do the podcast. I could probably open this up to a. Um, uh, psychiatric session, but I got my <laughs> seven and 63 a long, long time ago. And I was working at a company and I've always been in technology, but I, 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 I always got to make the jump into, and that could be a whole other podcast, but I'll leave it at this, that, um, I have no regrets, but it's interesting because I, I, I almost jumped into that pool. Maybe that's why I do the podcast. I get to combine yeah. it and tech and, personal finance kind of in one bundle, but that's for another show. Um, I really want to get into, tell us a little bit about your book sure. and what motivated you to write it. Um, a lot of reasons, really. I, you, you hit the nail on the head earlier. Financial advisors typically don't spend a lot of time talking about budgeting and cash flow, And, um, <laughs> you know, the, then I, I don't know really why that is, but, um, one of the big motivators for me is, is if you look across the entire United States of America and the financial landscape, the results aren't good. Um, the median income in the United States of America today is about 70,000 household income. It's about 70,000. And the median net worth of folks that are approaching retirement, so that, that demographic of 55 to 64, the median net worth is about 215,000. So when you combine that with, you know, like what you could reasonably pull off of that each year to supplement your, your income so you can live on it, and you combine that what you probably reasonably could expect to get from Social Security, your, your income's basically getting cut in half when you retire. Um, and that, I would say that's, that's probably a best case scenario. So um, I, I think the problem is the cash flow management piece, that the way budgeting is done is uh, is not getting the results that people want. They struggle with cash flow management for a variety of reasons. And this little spreadsheet, the one number budget, uh, I've been using it for three years. I used to do it the old way um, and clients hated it. And sadly, it took me 15 years to figure that out. Um, but when I transitioned to this little simple spreadsheet, all of a sudden that just unlocked something for people. And uh, when I saw it getting results from my clients, I was like, okay, maybe I can use this, write a book, and maybe somehow put a dent in that bigger problem. So that's what motivated. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. Like when it comes to the spreadsheet, um, Jody and I, uh, we both live in the spreadsheet and there's right. all these online tools that are available. Right. Uh, Mint was one. I don't know if it's still big. Um, you know, there, there's all these tools that you could use. But for whatever reason, to your point, and I think you hit it on the head, that simplicity of just this basic spreadsheet that allows you to kind of really dive deep. And that was one of the 
questions I had is like, in a nutshell, it sounds like, what is that basic concept? Do you, do you want to go a little deeper into the basic concept of what the number one budget is? Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> the one number budget, we, we start off with gross income. Uh, so that's up at the top. And the very first thing I want clients doing is taking 20% right off the top for long-term wealth building, specifically their retirement. So if you're saving for college, saving for a car, a vacation, that doesn't count. Uh, we're just counting what specifically goes towards retirement. So we're talking about 401ks, 403bs, TSP plans, um, investment accounts, and uh, permanent life insurance, anything that's an accumulation vehicle for that you intend to use for your retirement. So we pull 20% for that. Uh, next up is taxes. Uh, as you may have noticed, the IRS is gonna take it anyway. Um, yep. So we, we pull out for taxes and that leaves us with what's generally available for lifestyle expense. I divide that by 12 and that gets me down to a monthly number. I pull out for the two largest fixed expenses and those are usually housing and uh, childcare, housing, student loan, something like that. Um, so we pull out their two largest fixed expenses and then that leaves us with what I refer to as the one number, which is what you use to pay for everything else. So when I'm walking a client through this for the first time, what I say to them is like, okay, here is your one number. So let's just say it's 5,000 a month to pay for everything else. We've already backed out for housing and childcare. Uh, I said, can you get through four weeks on this one number? And I, I wait. And a lot of times people look at it, they were like, yeah, actually, I think we can. And I'm like, okay, well, that means the 20% savings up at the top here that we've already accounted for is possible. So how much are you saving now? So we do a, you know, we, we add, total that up, compare the two numbers. And if there's a gap, we just, you know, try, don't try to make any really massive, you know, swings towards uh, achieving the, but we just start moving in that direction you know, a couple percentage points at a time if need be, uh, just to get them to that 20%. And those clients that adopt this, once they get to the 20%, each year, it's just a matter of just making a very minor tweak to maintain it. Um, and that's the one number budget. Oh, that that is very cool because I, I talked about it in the past, um, the concept of pay yourself first, which is, yeah, which I, but I never looked at it through the lens that you do it. I never looked at, I always looked at it as a put away a little bit or a put away as much as I can aside. This is sort of a light bulb moment for me. Uh, it's interesting. I like the fact that you've made it more regimented. Thank you. Yeah. The, the one number like at the end of the day, like what I'm really trying to achieve is I only want to give my clients one number to track each month. Uh, mm -hmm. When they had to track 30 to 40 numbers, they'd get lost. They didn't want to do it. So they just stopped. Whereas if, you know, to use that example, again, if your one number is $5,000, what I'm telling my clients is your job over the next four weeks is just to keep your discretionary spending under 5,000. If you do that, everything else is taken care of. You don't have to worry about it. Um, and it, and it's, it's been working. Yeah, that is very smart. I think for me, like I said, I would put away, I'd put as much as I could aside, but I like your concept of getting that fixed percentage. It's almost like, you know, in your IRA, if your IRA or 401k, you always, you always have to take a certain amount off the top and that's right. programmatically. Yep. You would you know, say, okay, I need this much out. And so I, I love that concept. Um, what about people that come to you and say, John, you know, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. Um, sure. 
and and I can't do your budget because I don't have enough money. If I put all that money aside, I can't pay for anything, right? And I think it's part psychological, part, but there might be some real truth to it. Have you come across those use cases where <laughs> people have said, you know, I can't do this. I, I I put all my money aside. Now I got 500 bucks to do whatever for the rest of the month. What, what do you say to people who are in that? Sure. Boat? Yeah, that's a puzzle, right? Um, so the first thing I, I would, I, the, one of the reasons why selfishly I like the one number budget and I, as a financial advisor is, is it gets me out of the conversation of, well, Mr. Client, Mrs. Client, you spend too much on restaurants. Like I don't, I don't ever want to be involved in that. Um, that's parental, it's rude. And I, I just don't, I don't feel it's my place to tell people how to spend their money. Um, they need to come up with that themselves. But to your point, I've had people that making, you know, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year tell me I can't save anything. I've had people making two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year tell me they can't save anything. Um, so your point that it's a psychological thing, you're spot on. Um, but to the folks, let's let's focus on the folks that um, you know maybe they're struggling. They're making sixty to seventy thousand, and and they're trying to make it work. Um, you know, the first thing I would tell them is like look, you know, the first thing you can try doing is your retirement plan at work, sign up for 1%. You, you probably won't miss it. Uh, let's, let's just get something, something going there. Um, but then second, uh, I, I want to start looking at where they live, um, what kind of job, what kind of career have they chosen, and what does that look like over the decades going forward? And some folks that I do work with, I, the DC metro area, I don't know what year to year, it, it, it's, it's either number one or number two in the most expensive places to live. And so for some folks, you know, if, they, if they've chosen teaching as a profession or, or, or some other profession that's not a high income profession, I'll suggest to them gently, because again, mm -hmm. I, I can't tell people what to do, but I'll suggest to them, I'm like, look, uh, is there some other place in the United States that you would be happy living um, that we could take a look at? And so we'll make a list of cities and then I'll pull up realtor.com and we'll start plugging in houses. And then I can start showing them that like, Hey, there's other places in the United States where making 70,000, you can live quite a nice life, but in the DC metro area, you're going to struggle. Um, so that, that's, that's how I approach that conversation with folks that, uh, that aren't high income. Um, but the high income folks, it's just, you know, I, I use the one number budget to keep, uh, pushing 2% here, 1% there, hopefully without them noticing, um, and then, you know, ultimately build them up to the 20%. That's very cool. Yeah, and I, if I said number one budget before, I, I think I said one number budget. I want to make you sure did. I get that right. Yeah, I yeah, did, yeah. right? Okay. You got so it right. one, one number budget. And I, I just want to take a, a pause for a moment because I've talked to a number of financial advisors over the years. I don't think they've ever – touched these types of topics and when i and i and i think that's awesome that you're helping people at that grassroots level i don't know how to describe it but most financial advisors that i speak to it's about the markets right it's about the economy it's about the investments it's about you know how's wall street doing um uh, mutual funds it's very investment focused where i think you have um this 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 keen insight to give the your customers I'll call them customers yeah. um, a 360 degree view of how yeah. to and starting with 
I can't invest for you unless you have some money for me to invest, but I'm going to help you save some of that money, right? Which I think is great. I think that's great. And and I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, why do why do traditional budgets fail American households? Because like I said, Jody, um, Jody, if you're listening, you could text me or email me. I'm, I'm using your name a lot today. Um, <laughs> he he lived and died by the micro budget. Like he, sure. he did, he did, you know, I, this much money for uh, shoes, this much money for gas, this much money for, you know, it was very granular, but I think he enjoyed the granularity of it. And some people love to have that, I'll call it full control, but for me, it would never work. And that's why I use the macro budget. I know how much I make. I kind of know what I spend and, and I would, I could probably do a better job at, at managing my budget, my household budget, but it, it kind of works for me. I'm thankful and grateful. It kind of works for me, whatever, you know, at this higher level. But why do the traditional budgets fail Americans? Sure. Um, so to your point, there is a percentage of the United States, their brains are uh, wired such that doing the detailed budget, that gives them energy. They enjoy it. And my message to them is great. Keep doing it. Um, you know, the one number budget probably isn't for you. Um, but there's probably, I would guess, a larger, from my experience, there's a larger group of people out there that struggle with that type of budgeting. So a one number budget approach is, is more effective for, for them. As far as like traditional budgets failing America, the first is, I think, the way that traditional budgeting is done, it's done on a monthly basis. And what it trains the brain to do is basically say, well, okay, uh, there was more money than month this month, so we're good. And it doesn't really take into account a, a lifetime perspective. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. Um, second thing is traditional budgets tend to make people feel like a failure. And what I mean by that is, um, no month looks like last month or the next month. There's always some outlier. And so if something happens like your dishwasher blows up or something and you look at your budget and you're like, ah, you know, I'm negative $500 this month. All right, well, we'll try and make it up next month. And then next month, something else happens that wasn't planned. And in some, you know, if you got 30 to 40 categories, odds are you're going to exceed at least one of them. And human nature is, is that if you keep getting this negative feedback, you're just going to give up and you're just not going to do it. Um, a lot of times, you know, we're, we're in a place in our society this day, this day and age where a lot of households are two income households. People get home, they got to get dinner on the table. They're tired. They want to play with their kids. And it's like, oh, well, all right, well, let's, kids went to bed. Let's get the budget out. You know, like that's just not going to happen. Um, so that's, that's another thing. It's just too time consuming. Um, this next one um, I cover in the book is, and I, I think this is a big one, is traditional budgets by their, their design, it's not intended this way, it just kind of works out, is, is they're parental. Um, you know, it's a, there's, a, there's a, a waggling finger in your face about, you know, like, you're spending too much on this, you're spending too much on that. And I know that clients, sometimes they worry that I'm sitting across the table from them judging them. Or they'll come in and they'll tell me like, oh, we went on vacation last week and we're like, we got the big dinner and we're like, oh, John wouldn't like this. And I'm like, John doesn't, John doesn't get a vote. You know, you, you got to do your thing. Um, so that uh, that parental and the fear of judgment um, works works against folks. And then lastly, traditional budgets, they, they typically position savings last. And what I mean by that 
is think about a month where you just you just had a lot of additional expenses that you weren't necessarily planning on. How are you going to make up that deficit? Where who who are you, which bucket are you going to steal from? You know, are you going to tell the IRS they're not getting mm. paid? Are you going to tell the mortgage company they're getting not getting paid? No, you're going to steal from your future self. You're going to steal from your retirement bucket um, to make the numbers work. Uh, so th- those, in a nutshell, are the, the main reasons why traditional budgets typically don't get the results that we we would hope for. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And I think that um, for, for me, that's what would I would get. I think the one that thing that that you said resonated is just get too tired of yeah. doing it at that granular level. Right. Trying day on day because it's a, it is a chore to do and maintain budgets. But I have friends. They find it cathartic. Yeah, they, they will like track it, every it. spend. You go out. They love it. They go out with for them with a you know get a cup of coffee, you know, cup of coffee, right? <laughs> Either they're writing it down or putting it in their phone. And I think that's great if if you yeah. can keep up that rigor. I think I've tried it in the past and and it never I never finished it. So that's why I love just doing it kind of like I said at the macro level. Um shifting gears a little bit, uh, lifetime context of money. Um how and this was a question that I think um that was was kind of that interested me because, you know, we, we share questions and, right. you know, people think we don't do this all off the cuff. I talked <laughs> about this before. We, we have, we have to have some, some, some rigor in terms of questions and, and, and making sure we have a path forward on these podcasts. So I'm um, not revealing any secret here, but one of the questions that jumped out at me, I was dying to ask was co- lifetime context of money. Um, how does one fund 60 years of living out of 30 years of earnings. That that was very interesting to me because I need that as well, personally. Right. <laughs> Got to figure that out. Hopefully 30 years. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so retirement is something that is, it, it can be, retirement planning can be somewhat nebulous. And it can challenge people mentally in that when you're putting money away for retirement, you're basically saying, I can't have fun with that dollar now. I'm, I'm put, putting it off for another day. And that that can be challenging for some people. So I came up with this little talk that I've been using with clients for years where I draw out a, a, a life a lifetime on, on my whiteboard. And the way that I describe it in the book, and I include the drawings uh, in the book, is I, I, I just take, for simplicity's sake, I take a 90-year life. So if we say a life is 90 years, and I break it into thirds, the first third is the first 30. And in a lot of ways, our parents pay, pay for most of that. Um, and any years that we are working, that's kind of where we're just kind of getting started with our careers and finding our way. Um, so that's the first 30. I don't really spend a lot of time talking about that. The middle 30, the middle 30 is, this is where your, your prime earning years are and you are, um, that's really the engine, uh, the financial engine for your household is that middle 30. And then the final 30 is retirement. And so, as, as you shared already, the, the, you're, you're looking at funding 60 years of life, that middle 30 and the final 30, and you're funding it out of the, the middle 30, which when you think about it that way, now I, I, what I see in the eyes of my clients when I say that to them is a greater understanding of, oh my gosh, there's a lot of pressure on this middle 30. Um, and we need to make sure that we account for the, fu- the money that we're going to need in the final 30. 
uh, and I open the book with uh, with a poem, and I'm trying to you through that poem connect that future self, that person that, that you are, your future self is out there. Um, and there, the pre-retirement you is looking back at the decisions that you're making today. Um, and, and hoping that, you know, you accumulate a good amount of money. Cause of course you want you yourself, you want to have a fun retirement. So that's, that's the, that's the lifetime uh, context that I share in the book. Um, and that's where the 20% savings rate comes from. Um, if you, consistently save 20% or more during those middle 30, you will accumulate a nest egg that will enable a funded retirement. Very cool. And and I think that a couple of things, um, if any, sometimes there's background noise. There was some on my end, not your end. Um, I call that authenticity. Uh, that's my wife was leaving, opening the garage door, closing the garage door, bring my daughter to cheerleading. Um, one of the things you touched upon that I wanted to kind of dig into and I jotted it down was what is your, we talked about retirement a couple of times, and this is a, once again, a left field question. What is your personal view on social security? This comes up a lot um, where people are saying, well, it won't be there for me. It, it's, you know, I can't depend on it. Um, but, I'll, but I think a lot of people factor it into their living. And, and do you have a view on what's going to happen with social security? <laughs> Well, you know, I live right outside of Washington, D.C., right? <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. So here's 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 my opinion on Social Security. It's a little bit cynical. Um, you you got to look at who the people are that are ultimately going to make the decision about Social Security funding. And those people are politicians. And politicians, once elected, typically like to stay elected. And if you could imagine for a moment uh, watching C-SPAN and imagine any one politician standing up and saying, we need to cut Social Security funding in half, that person would probably disappear while you were watching them um, as they got voted out of office. So um, that doesn't solve the money problem, of course, um, but I, I, I'm being somewhat glib here, but at the end of the day, I believe that Social Security will continue to evolve and change, but I don't, I don't believe for a second that it'll disappear um, because, the, because the politicians, it's, it, it's a third rail. Um, and you see that they, every once in a while, they'll, they'll dance around it and try and talk about it, but it, it never gains steam because it's a third rail. Yep. Yep. No, that, that makes sense. And you put it very succinctly. Um, I, I've talked to people in the past and they'll go into kind of a 10 minute reason why <laughs> social security will, will, will be there. But I, I like your approach. It was very kind of boom to the point, And I think you're hundred percent correct. So, but I had to ask that question. Yeah, uh, sure. It all kind of ties together with retirement. Mm -hmm. um, what is the, uh, so another question we have is what is a human life value approach to budgeting and money management? You talk sure. about that a bit. Yeah, I use human life value mostly in the insurance work that I do for clients and in talking about what, what needs to be protected. But I, I thought it was a good tool to give people context into what's possible so they can kind of see what's possible. So for those listeners that aren't familiar with the term human life value, if you search on it in Google, it, it, it came to the mainstream a little bit after September 11th. It's the economic way that the government used to value the, um, the payouts for the folks that were, were sadly uh, killed on September 11th. And human life value is the net present value of all your future paychecks 
and then backing out inflation and taxes to, to a present day lump sum number. So in the book, I share a table. Um, and so but if you're between the ages of 20 and 40, your human life value is roughly 30 times income. So if you make $100,000 a year, uh, and God forbid something happened to you, you passed away, or if you became disabled, something something that 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 uh, made it impossible for you to earn income, um, then you know the loss to the family is thirty times that hundred thousand, or three million dollars. Um, and then if you're a little bit older, between your forties and fifties, then the human life value you don't have as many years to work, so it drops to twenty times. And then you know when you get into your uh, 50s, it's 15 times, and it keeps going down. Um, so I like to use human life value in addition on the protection discussion, also to share it with clients to say this is this is what's possible based upon your income today. Is this is what you're likely to make? Because sometimes folks will come to me, they're a financial advisor, and they're like, okay, great, you know, I make uh, I make eighty thousand dollars a year, and I want to have ten million dollars by the time I'm 50. Um, you know, it's uh, the, the income's just not there uh, to, mm. to support that kind of a goal. Um, so if we can use it, the human life value method to kind of give us a little bit of context, like, okay, you make 80,000, uh, 30 times 80 is 2.4 million, like 2.4 million, that, that, that's, a, that's a more reasonable attainment uh, than, a, than a $10 million. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fascinating mechanism, right? Because I think if, when you said that, it feels like it grounds people or maybe it wakes people up. I'm trying to think what's coming to my head, but to your point where people think they make X amount of money and they're going to make, you know, have millions in retirement and, and taking that methods it's in a polite way. You're saying you make X amount. Realistically, this is what you will have to invest. Like it, it really grounds people. I think it sets expectations. Maybe that's what I was looking for. Yeah. When I was thinking through this, it sets, sets expectations for people. Um, as to what their income level or what they're going to, what their accumulation probably will be. Right? right. Unless they change jobs or had some wild windfall or something like that. That's what they're, they're focused on. So that's awesome. Um, another question I have, and this is a fun question. How did watching Moneyball give you an idea for the tool to make budgeting simple? Cause I watched that movie, <laughs> love that movie, love both main characters in there, you know, with the number crunching and, and figuring things out. Um, how did that come to be? What, how did you get that light bulb moment while watching it? Yeah, I, sadly, like I love that movie probably a little too much. I've, I've probably seen it 20 times. Um, so I, I can't always turn off uh, work in my head. And so one day while watching it, there's this great scene where uh, Jonah Hill's character is talking to Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt. And um, Jonah Hill is trying to explain this computer program that he built and he's saying, yeah, we've got all these, these massive amounts of statistics about every single player, and it's all about getting things down to one number so that we can, you know, we evaluate the player based on that one number. And when I heard it, you know, for the 20th time, I thought to myself, I'm like, I wonder, I wonder if I could get budgeting down to a single number where they only, where my clients could, they only had to worry about focusing on tracking one number and that's where it came from no that's very cool i i don't know if i'm, I'm trying to think back on the movie because i've watched it 
Not as much many times as you, uh, but I've watched <laughs> it a number of times. But I, I can see how you tie that together. Um, you also talk about, uh, unrelated to the movie, you talk about <laughs> financial vampires. Oh, yeah. Right? What are they and, and, and how do you avoid them? I'm interested to hear more about this, this sure. concept. So financial vampires are the things that kind of suck money away from our suck money away from us primarily. Um, you know, Madison Avenue and the, uh, the big stores like, like target and Amazon, like they understand psychology better than we would like to believe. And they are experts at the impulse purchase. Um, so the, the impulse purchase, I, there's two that I always like to cite when speaking with clients. One is, um, when you go to, go to one of these stores, it's the mini deep fryer. Uh, if you've been to one of these stores, it's usually sitting on the end cap. It's usually like 1995 and there's a picture of delicious looking French fries on the cover and whenever they, and people buy it. And I, and I always look for a cart with that in it when I go to these stores, just cause I'm curious. And I know where I shouldn't say, I know I, there's no way anybody would ever convince me that somebody got up that morning and was like, okay, later today, I got to get to the store. Cause I got to get the mini deep fryer. Like nobody plans on buying that thing. Um, and then the other one is, and this is more probably our era, you know, uh, folks that, uh, graduated, um, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties, um, you know, who, who really decides at the checkout counter that they really need the Karate Kid series on DVD, you know, but like people see it and they just, they just buy, it's a complete nostalgia play. Um, they're just like, oh my gosh, I love that movie, you know, and they're transported back to high school and they buy it and then it just sits there. Um, so the way that I, I coach people on that is when you go to a store like this or you're, you're dialing up Amazon, um, you know, go there with intent, um, have, have a list. And if there's something that you see on the shelf that you feel like you need, um, try, try and put it on, a, on another list that you're going to plan on coming back for it. You know, like don't buy it today, but plan on buying it some other time. But see if, see, see if it really is something that just hits you in the moment or something you actually really need. Um, and then uh, car dealerships. Uh, this is where a lot of money goes for folks. Um, again, I'm not the, the, the guy to tell people what kind of car to drive. Um, but the way that cars are marketed to us, uh, everybody's excited to get a car and, you know, you got a little extra time on a Saturday, you swing into the dealership and you see this, this brand new car and maybe your, your payment is $350 a month. And so the car salesperson, they show you the new car, you like it. And then they show you, it's just like, well, if you trade in your car, um, we just increase your payment by, by $150 to 500 a month. You could, you could have this new car. So the sale really isn't, mm. isn't 500 a month. It's, it's 150 and 150 you can justify in your brain. Um, so, um, so the, the key there is just looking at what's the long-term impact of decisions like that. Um, so I uh, have a table in the book where I compare side by side, uh, folks keeping a car for five years, um, and then, you know, financing it for five years, paying it off and then buying a new car every five years. And then I <laughs> side by side, uh, side by side, what I show them is, okay, instead of keeping the car for five years, what does it look like if I keep the car for seven years? So finance for five years, 
two years with no car payment and then buy another car. And if you do that over 30 years, the difference between the two using the numbers and the values of the car that I, I put there, you know, the difference is, you know, between 150 to $200,000 over the course of the 30 years. So when people were asking me questions about, you know, how can I, how can I find money to save for college? You know, it, it sometimes can be in that, in that car discussion. Um, and then, um, the last one that I, I, sh I talk about in the book, uh, Financial Vampires, is um, you know the ease that we can access consumer debt. Um, you know, there's a lot of money that goes goes towards consumer mm -hmm. debt. So if I, uh, I haven't done this calculation uh, this morning, so if you if you've got twenty five thousand dollars on a credit card, which you know I see a lot of people that do, and if the credit card company is charging you twelve percent, that's three thousand dollars a year. Um, that's going towards servicing that debt. And if you can get rid of the credit card, then not only are you getting rid of that monthly payment, but you're, you're also recapturing $3,000. It could be going to something positive for yourself and for your family. So those, those are the things that I refer to as the financial vampires. Yeah, those are very important. Um, the, what resonated with me was um, I think no other store does a great job of where you walk in for one thing and walk out with five things is like <laughs> Costco. Right. There's one in my town and I'll walk out with stuff. I didn't even think I needed. Right. And, and I, I think all these stores do a great job of, of positioning those pieces. But I like the fact where you kind of step back and say, I'll come back next week. And I'll buy it. Let me think about it. Just don't buy it. So I like that 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 example. And the credit card piece is very interesting. I I did battle with credit cards early, early on, and we've talked about it on the show. Um, I, I we pay the balance off every month, right? So we don't carry any consumer debt, but we use the credit card and credit cards as a financial tool to make it easier. Uh, but to your point, consumer spending it doesn't have that psychological effect of, of, of walking into a store with, with a handful of money, but it is the same thing. And people don't, don't realize I'm getting into a very Dave Ramsey talks about that. Uh, the personality where, you know, cash is King and use cash, but I, I like to live in a real world where I want to use my credit cards. It's easier to use my credit cards. I do like to get the points. Um, some of these things, but to your point, if you're not careful, you could really let consumer debt balloon out. And, and I'm always amazed at people that where that happens because they're carrying and paying so much interest expense right. on those credit cards. So very, I love those examples that you provided when it came to the financial vampires. Um, you know, why do you, another question I have is why do you spend a good amount of time uh, with your customers and with your clients and in the book talking about psychological pitfalls? Why is that so critical? Well, human beings are interesting creatures, right? Um, if you look at any of the things that we've talked about today, Paul, like we're not splitting the atom here. I mean, this is this is not, you know, on the surface. It's not complicated stuff. And one of the things that uh, jumped out at me as I was writing the book and, and compiling the information from the book is there's a strong parallel, I think, between the budgeting conversation, personal finance, and the health and weight loss industry. 
Um, you know, if you look at the health and weight loss industry, you go to Barnes and Noble and you, you look and there's, there's like two to three large bookshelves packed with books on health and weight loss. And what, what, what do we have to do at the end of the day to lose weight? We need to eat less and we need to move more. And that's, that's about it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm oversimplifying. I'm generalizing. I understand some folks have health issues that go beyond that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the rest of us. Um, you know, and the same is true with the budgeting conversation is, is we need to spend less and save more. Um, so the psychological piece is that's, that's, that's really where the conversation lies. Um, everybody comes into their personal finance style and how they use money uh, by their own way. And there's something for folks that are trying to save for retirement, have a better financial life. There's something that gets in people's way. And so what I, you know, hopefully do through the, um, the one number budget is take one of those things away by just trying to, trying to make it simple. Um, so, it's not that we don't know what to do. Um, it's just that we're not doing it. Um, and uh, the psychology is that's where the answer lies as to like, why, why are we not doing that? I'm not a psychologist, uh, obviously. Um, but again, hopefully through the one number budget by making it simple, it makes it easier for people to do it. Yeah. I love that simplification approach, right? I think that's very key. And and we've talked a lot about that today, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask um, one question related to kind of being a financial dad, right? And that what are what are one or two of the most difficult decision points that parents face when it comes to household budgeting? And how do yeah. you help them navigate those decisions? Yeah, so the, uh, the, the two biggest ones are uh, housing and college. Um, so on the housing side, it's putting putting housing the housing discussion in context of the the lifetime cash flow model. The banks and the realtors they're good, well intentioned people, and the way that they've been trained to serve their clients is to talk in terms of maximums. This is how much house you can afford. This is how much you know, uh, yeah, basically how much house, how much how much mortgage you can get based on your income and your finances, and the. It's, it's all about the debt to income ratio. And what I share with people is that the, the big banks and, and the realtors, they're not, they're not looking at like the cash flow piece. They're not looking at like, okay, well, in two years, we plan to start a family and we're going to have kids and they're, we, we want the kids to have a nanny and uh, maybe that you've got a, a private school in mind for them. And so there's all these additional expenses. So if you buy that maximum house and then you add these other things in, you know, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be conflict there. So I put the uh, housing discussion in the context of, you know, what my clients share with me when I'm having the addition, the, the initial fact-finding discussion. I take them through a, a visioning exercise where they share with me what they want their lives to look like. And that's when I can put the housing discussion in context. Um, and that, that tends to be helpful. Um, those that, that take that process seriously, it's always very gratifying to me as the advisor in that, you know, if I onboarding a young couple, they don't have kids yet and we structure their cash flow with, with that in mind, with the kids in mind and they buy their house. And then five years later we get there and I've had this happen. 
the couple comes back to me and they're all excited about their, you know, the pending arrival of their, of their baby. And that's all great. But then there's also a little bit of anxiety. They're like, okay, well, what do we, what do we have to do? You know, we, we got to do something. And I'm like, well, you already did it. Like we shape, we shape the mortgage and, you know, we put this, this, this placeholder in your budget, even putting this money into this account, knowing that, you know, you were going to make this, this, this job change. And so when your baby arrived, so you're, you're all set. We just have to, we just have to change this one thing and, and you're all set. And just the relief that that gives them that they know that their life isn't about to be upended. Um, so that's, that's the housing piece on the college piece. You know, education funding's tough. What I what I share with anybody that'll listen to me is, is the college funding discussion is not about money. It's not economic. It's about love um, it, for for parents. It's 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 based in love, and it's very difficult for families to you know tell their kids like, hey, you can't go to that school. Um, you know, after the the kid has already fallen in love with it. Um, I, I've the discussion that I really don't like as a financial advisor is, you know, folks come in and they're like, well, uh, you know, my little Johnny has decided that he wants to go to Pepperdine and it costs $70,000 a year and we really don't have the money. So we're just, we're just going to have to figure it out. And like, I, I, I figure, figure out what, um, you know, it's like, you can't afford it. You know, I, 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 I want a nicer house. I, I live where I live because that's what I, I, I can afford. Um, so how I help folks at the college discussion is I very strongly encourage families to think through what's available for college or what they will make available for college for their children and start communicating that as soon as possible, as early as possible. And, and it doesn't have to be a big presentation. Children are eight, nine, ten. Just kind of just put it, just put it into context. Like if you know that the most that you can afford or put towards college is going to be at the state school level, then just kind of say, just just kind of mention, like, yeah, this is where you, you know, you'd probably be looking at schools because that's that's what we can kind of afford, and that just kind of like calibrates everybody. Everybody's on the same page. Uh, where parents get themselves into trouble is is they don't talk about it at all. The college salespeople and the uh, you know, just and their and their peer groups get a hold of them, and they fall in love with some expensive school, and they come home. And they're like, "Yeah, I already got in. I sent in the four hundred dollars, and uh, the bill for seventy thousand will be showing up. Uh, you know, next week, uh, mom, dad, thank you." Uh, and it's it's very tough, difficult to say no at that point. Um, now you're on your heels. Um, so that's that's how I approach the college discussion with folks. Um, is just to you know be be just just really communicate with your children as like this is this is what we can put forth um and and from a contextual standpoint and then i'll I'll stop because from a contextual standpoint is i tell parents and i'll and i say look bring your kids in and i'll tell them too for you um you the parents you absolutely have to retire you know you will get your last paycheck at some point your children do not have to go to college we want them to go to college and I want to, and, and I'm going to help you support that, but they don't have to go, but you will, you have to retire. Um, and, and that what I'm trying to head off is, is the, the big withdrawal from the retirement account to pay for the college. Um, because if they do that, a lot of folks, if they do that might put themselves in a position where they're going to be underfunded in retirement. And then the nightmare scenario is, is that they have to turn around and go back to their kids and go, Hey, I need money. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. I, mean, I, I don't know what popped in my mind, but this that would have been awesome when I had the conversation with my son, that third parent approach, bringing you in to, <laughs> to talk and level set with the family. Um, that's interesting. And it's so funny. Two, a couple of things that kind of jumped out at me was when you talked about housing, I remember clearly the house we're in now, we were pre-approved much higher. And we looked at houses that were higher, but we, we knew we had more money we could use, but we, we chose not to consume it. Yeah. Um, the other, and once again, Jody, uh, if you're listening, you'll text me. Um, he has, we talked a whole episode of Jody's downsizing. Yeah. He fell into that trap where he bought the most expensive house and he talks about, and I'll never forget uh, quoting him. He said, you know, I showed my wife that, you know, in, in 18 months, we're going to fall off the financial cliff with this house. Yeah. And they, they quickly sold the house or maybe not so quickly and bought another house. So shameless plug, people can listen back uh, to that episode, but great points. And I, I think it's easy to get caught up. I, it happened to me. My son and I, we were visiting colleges and there was one college in particular, a private college and the location and everything else. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm sitting, and I think I said to him exactly what you said was, yeah, we'll make it work. And, and, and I, my, told my wife and my wife's like, did you tell him he could go there? And I'm like, well, yeah. And he was like, well, why? Like, and so she's more level-headed and grounded <laughs> than me. And it all worked out in the end. Like he, he's going to a great school um, and, and he really likes it and it's a state school and it's worked out really well. Um, but I could see how parents get caught and students, not only the students, but the parents could get caught up in the trap of schools that they can't truly afford. So that's great advice that you gave. And, and, you know, so I think for me, um, it resonated. So thank you for that. Well, I want to ask you more questions that are unrelated to. Yeah, oh, yes. Yes. I just want to throw, throw one more thing in there in the college discussion. I think where sure. uh, a lot of families, um, they, they end up in bad situations is um, they don't get a really good understanding of what the student loan looks like when they have to start paying it back. And so what I share with families, I make them write it down and share it with their kids I just say $100,000 of student loan financed over 20 years at 6% is a monthly payment of almost $700. So if you think about somebody making $50,000 a year out of college, which be, which would be good, right? You know, making, making 50,000 right out of college and $700 having to come out to, to pay, um, you know, it, it makes it difficult to, to have a life outside of your parents' basement when you have a student loan that size. So I share that with folks to say like, you know, when you're, when you're helping guide your kids, you know, if you show them what that's going to look like on the back end, that can help them make better decisions today. Um, and I know from some folks I might hear from this episode, like, well, they we have income based repayment. Well, that, that doesn't mean that the $700 payment goes away. It just means that, you know, maybe you'll pay 350, but the other 350 is getting added to your loan every month. Um, so that's not the income based repayment is really not a solution. You still owe the money. Um, so just teaching, teaching our children, this is what the loan looks like on the backside. This is what your life will look like on the backside. So if you're trying to decide between, you know, this school over here that costs this versus this school over here, which is more expensive and is going to result in a bigger loan, this is the impact to your life in the, in that first decade out of school. That is great advice. 
um, to kind of look at it and let it hit you in the face yeah. in terms of what your payments would be and what that duration of the payments would be. I think that's very, very key. I didn't even think about that, but that's a great way to look at it. So it puts the money in kind of that real, the payment in that real world scenario. So I love that. Um, two questions I want to ask you. Yeah. Uh, how have you applied your experience of being a marathon runner <laughs> to your financial career? I've been looking um, at doing a half marathon, but it sounds like you're you're definitely doing a lot more than that. And I know there's a lot of prep and training, and that's probably why I've been hesitating. Uh, there is a big commitment to to running a marathon. I have a, a good friend of mine who runs marathons on a regular basis, and and a lot of discipline to really train and do it the right way. I'm going to say doing it the right way. I, I have had friends that run the marathon and they don't do anything up until marathon day and they put their sneakers on <laughs> and they run and it's a disaster, right? They wind up inevitably with knee injuries or the, their time is like six hours and change. Like It's always crazy, right? right? But I've had friends that do that too. But have you applied your experience of being a marathon runner to your financial career? Um. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I guess it's perspective. Um, I was a sprinter in high school, um, and then I made the transition to uh, endurance running uh, as an adult. And, you know, the marathon requires you to be thoughtful about how you're going to do that race and how you approach that race. And I think that applies to, uh, you know, the that 90 year life and, you know, the first 30, middle 30 and final 30. It, it's, it's, the, it's a very similar approach. Um, and then the other thing that I like to, uh, uh, to, or I, I should say, I hope my, my clients get out of, uh, my marathoning experience is, um, just to show folks what's possible. Uh, a lot of times, you know, I, I'll hear folks go, you're running a marathon. I could never do that. And that's just not true. Um, you know, if, if you do the training, you, you, you can do the miles. Um, so that's uh, those are the those are the two things I would say to your to your question. That's good to know because I'm going to take that advice because maybe that'll I want to do the half. So I'll, I'll again, I'll, but what you just said, so it is the art of the possible is there. So I love that. Yeah. And then the final question I have for you is how do you balance your business and family? You've written a book. Yeah. You have a successful business, and 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 you and it's very entrepreneurial. Right. Yeah. So you're, you know, your, your business customers, and it's not a nine to five business typically, right. um, at least from the financial advisors I speak to. Um, how do you balance that all out of being a dad, but also being an author, being a good businessman? How, how do you, how do you figure that all out? Sure. So the primary way um, I kind of fell into this uh, years ago I noticed that after nine o'clock at night, I wasn't really doing anything that was very productive. Um, and what I would end up doing is just staying up later than I, I probably wanted to or needed to because I was watching some movie or there's always something on TV that's interesting, you know. So what I decided to do was to basically slide my day back. So I was going to bed at 11, so I slid it back two hours. And so I go to bed around nine, nine thirty most nights. Um, and I get up at 4.45 in the morning. And so that basically gives me two to three hours of uninterrupted time. And uh, I use that time to prepare for my day. Uh, I, I do a lot of my, my training runs at that time. 
And so when my, my, my wife comes downstairs for her first cup of coffee, she, she highlights, she, she has to remind me of this all the time. I'm on fire. You know, I'm like, yeah, I did this and I read about this and this is really cool and everything. And she's looking at me like, I, I, I just, I was asleep like two minutes ago. You, you got to give me some time to catch up to where you are. <laughs> Um, but it's those, uh, the, it's those two to three hours in the morning. That's, that's where I do a lot of my, uh, my stuff with the book and exercise and, uh, you know, getting ready for my day. Wow. That's very smart. I, I, one of the things that when you were speaking, uh, about the TV and sliding it back and figuring that out, I, I, I tend to tell people, like I have friends that are very successful and the one common denominator with them is they have no idea what's on Netflix. They have no idea what's on Hulu, yeah. right? They just, they don't. Like you, you, you talk about, you know, uh, conversations. Did you see the latest episode of you know, Ozarks or whatever it is? What is that? I'm like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I get it. So I have friends that are of that. They don't watch TV and they get stuff done, uh, which I think is amazing. And, and I love that concept of kind of those two to three hours um, there's a book, and I'm not trying to plug someone else's book, but um, very similar concept. It's called Two Awesome Hours. Yeah. I talked about it on the show, and I, I got – they gave a presentation at one of the jobs I was at years ago. And it talks about what you just said. You have to find that part of the day that is yours, yeah. and you get those two hours. And and I can relate with the thing with my wife because I, I do that too. You know, I'll be on the Peloton or I'll – you know. <laughs> And she's just waking up and I'll get some of those things done. So I could definitely – some of that stuff definitely resonated with me. So thank you for that. Um, we'll, we'll start to wrap up. And I think the things that jumped out at me – and there was a lot. This is one of those episodes. I, I, I find myself saying this a lot, but I will definitely listen back because there's so many things. And I couldn't write them all down. But if I call out three things immediately, I love the financial vampires concept. Um I love that impact projection of the college loan. I think that's so important for parents to write that down, put it on paper and everyone stare at it for a little while, right? So if you're going to borrow 150 grand, 200 grand, and you know your payment's going to be $1,500 a month for 10 years, really think about that. Really look at it. Um, the other concept was this 30, 30, 30. Um, I, I think that that's very interesting to me to kind of bucketize kind of your life into those three chunks. So I thought that was amazing. So thank you for all of this. My and pleasure. with that, John, I'll let you have the last word. Any final takeaways, any plugs? Where can people find you? Sure. So um, the I guess the, the final thoughts, you know, folks want to obviously improve their financial lives. And what I say to folks a lot of times is, you know, in, invest in yourself, like find, find ways to make yourself more valuable to your employer. Like that's, that's really the, the key is, is if you can continue to increase your money supply and the making yourself better on an ongoing basis in your career, I think is a good defensive mechanism as well, because um, I don't, it, I, I write about this in the book. There's a, a publication, um, Gosh, I can't remember the name of it right now. I cite it in the book. It gets ProPublica. Um, there's this article that cites this very, dis I find a very disturbing dis uh, uh, statistic that uh, if you're over the age of 50, there's a 56% chance that you will lose your job due to no fault of your own. So 56% of people over the age of 50 lose their job due to no fault of their own. That's not the scary statistic. 
the scary statistic is, is that only one in 10 will actually replace that income. Um, so when I say like, make yourself better, um, you know, working on, on your craft, whatever your role is. Um, so the, the, the quick and dirty, uh, dirty advice there is, uh, $15 a month on audible. Um, you, you get a, a, a auto audio book every month and just, just listen to whatever the latest and greatest is that relates to your career. Um, that's a good, good way to, to protect, but also grow your income. Um, and, and I, I would just like to repeat what you were sharing earlier. You know, 60 years of your living needs to be funded out of 30 years of work. Um, if there's any mantra that I could encourage people to keep top of mind, that would be it. Um, and, and allow that to, to kind of shape how you use money, especially during that, during that middle 30. Uh, best way to get find me. If you're interested in looking at the book, the book is available on Amazon primarily. Uh, it's the one number budget. And uh, if you're not ready to buy the book yet, if you go to my website, onenumberbudget.com, uh, you can download the first chapter for free. Um, and then uh, I'm going to give away uh, in the book, there's, uh, there's a link to download the actual One Number Budget spreadsheet. Um, so if uh, you want to get a copy of that in advance of looking at the book, uh, onenumberbudget.com forward slash worksheet. Um, and that'll take you to the page where you can download the worksheet. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's how you get a hold of me. And I, oh, and then if you go to onenumberbudget.com and the contact page there, if you'd like to interact with me, that's how you can get a hold of me there. Awesome. Well, well, John, I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today, yeah. and I'm personally looking forward to the next one. Hopefully, I have you back on the show. I'd love it. And I think there's a lot of topics we could go deep into the rabbit hole on around college funding and home buying. There's a lot of things. So, so thank you for all of this. My pleasure. Um, thanks everyone for downloading our podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at financialdads at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook. Just go to financialdads.com. So with that, this is Paul reminding you managing finances can be stressful, but that's why the financial dads are here to help you plan for success. Have a good one, everybody. Be well. And thank you. This podcast is intended for general public use. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities LLC and your financial representative are not undertaking to provide investment advice or make recommendation for a specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Financial Dads podcast is not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian or Crane Financial and opinions stated are their own. John W. Crane, Registered Representative and Financial Advisor of Park Avenue Securities LLC. Park Adams Securities, Office of Jurisdiction, 11350 McCormick Road, Executive Plaza 3, Suite 202, Hunt Valley, Maryland, 21031. Phone number 667-318-0801. Securities, products, and advisory services offered through Park Avenue Securities, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York, Park Avenue Securities is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Crane Financial LLC is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities or Guardian. California license number 0G79065. Compliance number 2023-149596. Expiration date March 2024.